G'day everyone, welcome back to Under the Wig, I'm Alex Manning. And I'm Alex DeRosso. As usual, we're brought to you by the College of Law. Law school is only the first step to admission, the next step is practical legal training. The College of Law provides the largest range of flexible, practical legal training programs in WA. Visit collaw.edu.au to learn more. That's C-O-L-L-A-W.edu.au. Now, even a global pandemic hasn't stopped the clerkship season, it is upon us, and accordingly there are many penultimate year students scrambling for clerkships. Fortunately, we are very lucky today to be joined by Nathan Collins, the recruitment partner at Kingwood Mallisons. Nathan, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Nathan, we, we would love to get your insights on the clerkship process, but first we might talk quickly about what it's actually like being a partner at a top tier firm. You're the recruitment partner at KWM, but you're also one of the banking and finance partners, and you're also uh, one of the R&I partners as well, the restructuring and insolvency partners. So so how did you come to be in this position or positions? <laughs> do you mean, sorry to answer a question with a question and sound like a lawyer, do you mean how did I... How did I <laughs> How did I get to become a partner, the process around that, or the whole, do you want the whole story? I don't see why not. Let's go go for the whole story. story. (laughs) I'll keep it short. So I actually started my career at Cause as a grad, and I worked at Cause for just over two years. I moved from Cause to Mallison Stephen Jakes, as it then was, and I had done banking and finance work at Cause, and then I I moved to Mallison, worked in the banking and finance team there for a tick under two years. And then I actually moved to London and worked at Slaughter in May for a tick under five years. So I finished up at Slaughter's in November of 2010, walked the Camino in Spain with my wife, and then I came back to Perth towards the end of November. So I spent a few years as a senior associate in the in the banking and finance team, and then I got made up on 1 July 2013. Right. The general process was really to understand as much as I possibly could about the practice of banking and finance um, and worked on I worked on many different transactions one of the benefits of working in Perth is that you don't tend to get siloed too early banking and finance is a speciality in itself right but that can be broken down into many sub specialities so in Sydney we have an aircraft finance team that sounds cool yeah well it's technically asset finance but and I do asset finance in Perth but the asset finance I do tends to be caterpillar trucks the asset finance sounds about right for Perth yeah so <laughs> yeah, you can have asset finance which covers all those different types of assets and then you can have a more specialist area being just aircraft so anyway the point was I started in Perth doing a mixture of general corporate finance project finance especially that's resources project finance and real estate finance I, I should also just point out to everyone at this point before we move on that uh, owing to you know current apocalypse, Nathan is joining us by Skype and that's why if at any point he goes a bit crackly or sounds like a talkback caller, that's what's going on there. Just thought <laughs> Thank I'd you. that out. It's not me. It's the technology. It's, it's not you. <laughs> and, and your opinions, I'm sure, are much more well-informed than the average talkback caller. So we've got that too. <laughs> I, I wouldn't assume that. <laughs> yeah, all right. So banking and finance is your practice area. What's it like as a practice area? What do you enjoy about it? Banking and finance is a technical area and I've always enjoyed that part of the practice. I enjoy the fact that transactions can be done relatively quickly or you could have a spread of transactions that go from being done inside two weeks through to transactions that take six months or 12 months. So you get quite a lot of variation in the area. It means that for me anyway, it keeps me fresh, 
like throughout the day, I can turn my mind to different tasks on different matters. And I'm not just doing one big matter, which uh, for me... A little bit of variety. Yeah, the variety is good. And, you know, I started my career thinking I would be a litigator. And although I won't tell our litigators this, but I do tend to think that real lawyers do litigation. But um, Fortunately, our target audience are not yet admitted <laughs> lawyers. So. <laughs> so, but but I, what I didn't like about litigation so much when I was a junior and rotating through those teams was that it tended to be stuck on one or two big things. And I, I was probably too impatient. The, the other thing about what I do is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of negotiation and deal cutting. And I like negotiating. Any part of my day will involve a negotiation. I'm pretty much involved in a negotiation every day on whatever matter I'm working on or matters I'm working on. What I'm beginning to understand is that although banking and finance sounds an awful lot like just lots of numbers, you talking about negotiation seems pretty important yes. interpersonal yeah. aspect. I mean, the, we draft facility agreements to provide to companies. And as part of those arrangements, you can have one bank or you can have 30 banks or the biggest syndicate I've ever worked on in my life was over 300 banks. What you're then doing is you have a contractual framework where the, the lenders are providing funding for, it might be a project or it might be an acquisition. And as part of that lending, there are all these conditions around why they're going to lend. So you have what's called conditions precedent. And then as part of it as well, you have all these undertakings that the representations, warranties and undertakings that borrowers give to the lenders to make the lenders feel comfortable that the money that they've lent is actually going to be paid back. And when you think about the sums that we deal with, which can be anywhere between $20 million through to multiple billions of dollars, those promises actually become quite important. So what we do in the negotiation is we're, we're often negotiating around the types of representations that the borrower will make and the undertakings that the borrower will make and the information that the borrower is supposed to give to the lenders and the events of default that the lenders can call on to get their money back. And that's, that's like a very basic overview of what we do, but that's where the key parts of the negotiation are. Right. And that's one of the things I really love about it. On that, I suppose, what is your daily working life like as a partner in a top-tier firm? We know it involves a lot of negotiation, <laughs> but what's, what's that really like being there? Shall I, give you a, shall I give you a snapshot of today? for example. Sure, can, why not? Go. I'll go into my diary. Um, this morning I was up at six. I went for a short run, came home, had breakfast, and I had, had my first call at 8am, uh, and that was to discuss some offtake agreements. So in project financing, when you're selling a commodity, uh, you'll typically have offtakes. And so we were discussing the offtakes with our client. In this case, it was a lender. We then went straight from that call into a call with the borrower's general counsel. I then had to prepare an email to say this is this is what we were going to accept in relation to certain parts of those offtake agreements. Straight after that, I got onto another internal call with one of the project's partners and one of his solicitors and also one of my solicitors talking about how we were going to put together some uh, securities for a, a major project. In this case, there's a it's a significant. Um, joint venture arrangement that the project's team is working on and so they they need our help in relation to what to do with the cross charges and how to get those and how to get that security registered. I then had a break of sorts for about 45 minutes where I did have a client call who they just call all the time and I managed to get a few emails off. I did a small amount of admin 
Then I had a team meeting at 11 o'clock, which went to 11.30. I then sent some more emails. I did a call, another call with the client, and then I prepared myself for about somewhere between two and a half and five minutes for this. After this, I have another call at 2.30 to discuss other contractual arrangements on a project financing. That will go for about 45 minutes. I'll have a gap for about 20 minutes where I need to settle a document with one of my solicitors. I then have a catch-up with one of our grads just to check in to see how she's going during the course of the week. That will take me to four o'clock. And then between four o'clock and six o'clock, which is when I'll knock off to have, well, I'll probably knock off at 5.30 and throw the Frisbee with my eldest son. I've got to do some admin. I've got to get some bills processed and I've got to catch up on a few other emails. And then I'll also normally get somewhere between two and 300 a day and make sure that, that they're distributed to the team and the work's getting done. So that will be, and that's a relatively short day. That sounds like quite a saturated day. That's a, that's a, like today's easy. Yesterday was much tougher. I finished yesterday at about 10.30 in the evening. Having started it. I started, I started at 5.30, started and finished at 10.30. But I don't want to scare people off. It's not, not like that all the time. (laughs) There's a bit of balance. Yeah. Well, He he got a 10 hour day today. So working remotely is great when you have to do uh, focused concentrated work you know if i'm working on a document where i need two to three a two to three hour chunk of time to do the document then working from home is great because i don't have any of the usual kinds of distractions that i have in the office people coming up to your desk and Mm. asking you random questions and all that kind of thing i do have the i do have phone calls from clients but i can shut those out and just focus on the document so that's fine and that's one of the great benefits of working from home the downside of working from home is by not being in the office when I'm surrounded by the team, I can do a lot of incidental supervision. And by, by that, I mean that I can talk to my SAs and the solicitors and say, like, they might have questions. They'll say, can I get you for five minutes? Or so? And I'll, I'll have like a 30-minute chunk of time. And I just deal with a series of questions across the various matters that I'm working on. And that's, that's much harder doing it remotely because you're just not physically proximate with people to give them that instruction. So all the instructions I'm giving, either I'm, I'm on telephone calls or I'm giving the instructions through instant messenger on, on Skype or I'm, I'm texting stuff through the phone uh, or, or emails. And so all of that just slows things down because actually it's much quicker to verbally give an instruction to three people in the space of five minutes than it is to type this stuff out. And, and so our days working remotely have been longer. That's what we've found. There'll be a lot more to shake out of this yet, um, and I don't, I don't think we'll know the full impact until much later on in the in the year, and in the coming years. Many law students' ambition, I'm sure, is to be a partner in a top tier firm. Mm. You've been a partner in a top tier firm for a whopping seven years. Mm-hmm. What's your ambition now? What's your next step? Well, I'll, I, I had a heads up that this question might come, and I, I laughed when I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> So a little bit of revealing your hand. <laughs> yeah, look, I, so I, it's it's an interesting one because I think that I, we certainly hear that that a lot of law students don't necessarily want to be partners, and I'm pleased to hear that law students do still want to be partners. I I was pretty focused early on that I did want to be a partner, and um, and I'm glad I achieved it. And I hope others, you know, I hope other law law students will hold that ambition. There's there's still a significant chunk who do, I think. Yeah, I was, it is it is good to hear because there's a lot of work that goes into it. And, and I think what I would say before getting to the key part of your question is, 
you have to, in order to get close to getting there, you have to try and be as consistent as you possibly can. And you have to keep learning and you, you can't take, you will suffer setbacks throughout your career. I mean, I've suffered a bunch uh, and you can't, you can't let that stop you from pursuing what you want to do. So I, I think in answer to your question, though, what is my ambition now that I'm a partner and have been for a while? The ambition is to get better. Uh, you know, it's a bit like I, I used to do when I was younger. I used to do a lot of martial arts, and you can you can get a black belt, right? But just because you've got a black belt doesn't mean that you've achieved mastery. It just means that you've actually got through the initiation phase effectively, and from there you continue to improve. And I've, I I feel partnership is a bit like that because you start as a partner, um, and and that's really a first step in working towards mastery of your subject area so my ambition is to be the best in my area that i possibly can be and i keep extending my my goals and what what i want to achieve out of my career longer term you know there's a bit of me that still thinks that real lawyers practice in court and so you know i might what i want to i might i might go and join the bar who knows um but that's oh, yeah? certainly oh. for, for any malison's partners listening that's that's not going to happen anytime soon but it's yeah that that is <laughs> it is something that i wouldn't mind doing down the track I mean, at, at the moment it's definitely not something i'd want to do and, and in part because i think being a barrister is a it's more of a solo occupation it's it's a bit it's a bit monastic in a way and you, you know you get the brief and you have to do the work and you you're doing it by yourself one of the great things about being in a law firm and being a partner and head of a team is that you've got you're surrounded by all these energetic got lines to bounce people. things off yeah and and it's it really is a great place to work in a team and it's a great it's a great place to see people develop you know there's nothing better than seeing people that I've had work with me from the time they were grad and then become a senior associate. I haven't actually been able to get anyone up as a partner in in um, Perth yet, but you know, ultimately I would like to, to do that. And I've certainly, you know, one of the trainees I had in London is now a, a partner at Slaughter Remain. That was a great thing to see him achieve that from, you know, thinking that I, he sat in my office when I was a senior associate and he was a third seat trainee and he's now a partner at that place. So that's, you know, you that's contributed another... to that journey. Exactly. I suppose. I mean, I, I actually got an email from one of my old trainees just the other day who was leaving the firm. She'd been there for 12 years. And it's nice to still have that connection with people that you worked with long. I mean, she was my trainee back in 2009 and, you know, it's great to still have that connection with people you've worked with. And certainly when you've worked long and hard on transactions with people, you, you tend to get strong bonds with them. I can imagine. Mm. I, I guess this talk of, of training and mentoring people kind of brings us quite nicely to your your other hat as the recruitment partner at KWM. Yep. Obviously, you handle clerkships there. What, what advice do you have for students who are going through the clerkship process now, whether that be specifically at KWM, but also just in general? So you have to be realistic about where you sit and that means actually taking a, having a good look at what you've been doing at university, both in, in terms of your contribution to university life as well as your grades. Um, and that's not to say having a lower GPA will mean that you won't get accepted at the big firms. We don't. We, we used to years ago have a have a 
cutoff, a grades cutoff, but we don't now. I mean, if you're, but, but in saying that, you know, this is what I mean by realistic. If your GPA is 52, you're probably not going to get an interview with us, right? So you have to be realistic about where you sit. When it comes to the, when, when it comes to the process, I think it's important in your in your covering letters to be accurate. You know, there's all these all these little things that are easy to get right, but but people don't because they're distracted or rushing around. So you know, make sure that you've got the correct addressee on your letter. Make sure that if you're sending us a letter, for example, that it's not addressed to the correct person, but then you've got another firm, law firm's name on the letter. You know, that stuff. Does does that kind of thing happen? I throw letters out that are like that. I just think if you don't, if you can't be bothered to get that right, then you don't really want to work at the firm because the reality is we get 300 plus applications, right? And so you have to what you what you're trying to do is is put yourself in a position which allows you to stand out from all of those other applications, and you want to stand out for good reasons. If you're standing out because you can't get the name right, then that's not good. And in the covering letter itself, I think it's important to include some, you have to be your authentic self. Um, try and get that into your covering letter. It's important also to demonstrate some understanding of the firm that you're applying to. And I always say, in that case, have a think about the local transactions that are being worked on. You know, I do see covering letters that talk about all these great transactions that KWM has worked on, and they tend to be transactions that were done in Sydney or Melbourne and I think well that's nice but no one no one in the Perth office necessarily knows much about those right so and there's these days it's easier like there's I'm not that old that there was no internet when I was applying but there's certainly a lot more information out there about the transactions that firms have worked on you should try and have a think about the practice areas that you're truly interested in working in I know that's really hard as a law student and certainly when I was a law student I didn't envisage that I would work in banking and finance actually didn't really know what banking and finance was partners in law firms are always looking for people who who want to work in a particular area you know and some some areas some areas more easily attract students than others so it, it tends to change year year on year but a lot of students will say i want to work in dispute resolution because that's that's kind of the way law tends to be taught in our law schools right so that's what people know you go to a law firm and you, you practice in litigation or they know enough to say, well, I'd, I'd like to do M&A and so I'd like to work on, I'd, I'd like to be doing acquisitions, right? Some of the, some other practice areas like projects, um, people are a bit less familiar with and certainly banking and finance, people tend to be a bit less familiar with. So I think you need to have a think about the areas that you that you're interested in. And that also means that if you're interested in, you know, if you want to work in intellectual property, for example, then maybe you should think about about working in IP East Coast because most law firms don't really carry an IP department in Perth. The reality is Perth law firms follow what the Western Australian economy does, and that is there's a lot of mining, there's a lot of services, you know, a lot of the transactions I work on are mining related. A lot of the M&A transactions that the firm works on are mining related. A lot of the litigation the firm does is mining related, right? So if that's not your thing, that's fine. But don't try and practice in an area that the firm doesn't really practice in. So you've got to do, you actually have to do the work before you put the application in. That's really important. Okay. And you said you get over 300 applications. Yep. 
How many of those translate to interviews? Uh, depends year on year. So last year, last year we did, we had over 300. Last year we did approximately, we, we did under 60. But I, and I can tell, I can tell you that at, at our firm, the, the applications are split between the partners and the partners. So there's a, there's a smaller number of partners that sit on the selection committee and the partners read the cover letters and CVs. So it's not a case of, you know, other people in the firm reading it. The, the partners read them and we put our shortlists together. And then what I do as recruitment partners, I then have a look at the pile and then I have another look at um, covering letters and CVs. And, you know, there are always some maybes. And so we make a make a decision on the maybes at that point. And then we do the interviews. Uh, and then we do, we do one round of summer clerkships and we do one round of winter clerkships. We don't do summer two. And then when I became recruitment partner, we stopped doing summer two because in my view, and I still other people and other firms have a different view, but my view is that summer two people tend to have an inferior experience to summer one because when you're in the office in January, there tends to be, that's, that's when a lot of people in particular partners are on leave, especially with school holidays. And there tends to be a lot less deal activity on in those few weeks. So, you know, if you're, if you're in summer one, in the lead up to Christmas, there's a huge amount of deal activity. Everyone's in the office. You get to go to at least one Christmas party, probably two, maybe three if you're lucky. Um, that all happens. None of oh, that yeah. happens in summer two, right? So it's, you get a different experience. And so that's why we do, that's why we just do summer one. Also on the topic of clerkships, mm. how do you think COVID-19 has affected the clerkship selection process? Well, it, it will um, because and it, we're still working through that at the moment. We've got winter clerkships coming up. Uh, it is uncertain whether we will still go ahead with clerkships in the office or whether we'll do a, a, a virtual clerkship. Um, it's still to be determined and we have to and keep in mind where, you know, we're an international firm, we have to try and maintain consistency across the offices. So... There will be more on that in the coming weeks, but obviously people who've already been through summer, we've had a we've had a look at, and I'm hoping that we actually do get clerks into the office in winter. So then you're actually in a position again for consistency to compare the different clerkship groups. The other thing that's happened, of course, is that normally when we have people come through, in the, certainly for summer clerkships, those who've done really well, depending on business needs, do tend to come back and do one day a week in the firm. And we haven't really been able to run that program this year because we've been working from home for eight weeks and we wanted to continue running it. It was actually very difficult just to make sure that the work was getting down to one day a week clerks. So that's that has an impact in terms of our selection process as well. Because do you think there will be quite a a serious impact on graduates, not necessarily at KWM, but, you know, across the board? Yeah, I think so. I, I think I think there will be, I think overall in the industry, there will be fewer places next year because I, I think firms will take a conservative approach in relation to recruitment. Personally, I think we, you know, we should always try and recruit as many uh, according to our budget as we can because the thing is, the thing about recruitment is we're not just recruiting for a grad cohort for the following year, we're recruiting for the future of the firm. So we're looking to recruit people who are going to still be at the firm in four years' time. They're, they're the kinds of discussions that we're having internally at the moment. Have you got any particular tips, I suppose, for any unfortunates who might be graduating at the end of this year and are going to find themselves in an even more competitive market? The first thing would be to just worry about 
controlling what you can control. So there's no point trying to second guess what firms will do because the reality is that I don't want to speak for all law firms, but I, but as as a person who's worked in law for a long time now and who's who's been in recruitment for a while, I think law firms will be grappling with what the size and shape of the cohort will look like. So if you're a law student, and I know it sounds like, oh, there's a partner, he's fine. <laughs> it's fine to say, don't worry about it. But the reality is there is no point worrying about it because you can't control it. What you can control is the work that you're doing at university, the way you're preparing for exams, the way you prepare your CV and your covering letter, the way you interact with the people that you know from law firms. And when you actually get to the interview, you can the, the way you conduct yourself, they're all things within your control. So if you do those things to the best of your ability, you're going to improve your chances of getting a job in a, in a good firm. That's what I would say. If you find yourself in the position where you don't get a job, it's important to try not to be disheartened. And it's a, it's a bit like, like I said earlier about the road to partnership. You will suffer setbacks and it's how you deal with the setbacks that define you and that determine whether you actually get there or not. So if you do have that setback of not getting in a firm, don't just drop your bundle. Work out how you might be able to apply in a different way. There's the standard way to get into law firms, but there are, you know, there are other ways ultimately to get into firms. Think about your connections. Think about how you might be able to do some other work which will improve your CV. Those kinds of things are important, I think, if you suffer a setback. All right. Well, I think that probably wraps it up. Um, thank you very much for coming on today, Nathan. Indeed, thanks very much for your time. No problem. It's good to speak to you guys and I appreciate the invitation. And yeah, wish you guys well with the rest oh, no of worries. your degrees and you. your career and uh, all of the students at MSLS. My, my wife's actually a former Murdoch law student. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have, have a lot of sympathy with the law school there. So yeah, good luck, guys. I hope it all goes well. Oh, for cheers. Right. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And to yourself. And best of luck with your very, very busy day to continue. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much. Thanks also to College of Law and our supporting sponsor for this episode, King and Wood Mallisons. And uh, best of luck to everyone applying for clerkships right now. We'll see you all uh, hopefully back at uni in second semester.